Welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Lynch about medieval education. Dr. Lynch is assistant professor of history at Angelo State University in Texas. Her book, Elementary and Grammar Education in Late Medieval France, Lyon, 1285-1530, was recently published by Amsterdam University Press. So, Dr. Lynch, the book is entitled Elementary and Grammar Education in Late Medieval France, and I wonder if you could start by telling us, what do you mean by grammar and elementary education in the Middle Ages? Well, basically, what we're looking at is everything we conceive of today as pre-university education. Uh, It is, for the most part, it's the foundational instruction in Latin language and literature. It's basically going from the uh, age of seven, which was the traditional beginning of education, to roughly 14. Okay, Uh, so and it's everything from going in with absolutely no knowledge of Latin to being by the end, whenever that end was, because it wasn't particularly strict, uh, whenever you were absolutely fluent in Latin and had an incredible grasp of literature, uh, scripture, uh, and oftentimes additional uh, rhetorical and dialectic skills, and even the beginnings of logic as well. So it's, it's, it's actually quite wide-ranging, but it's everything from what we would conceive as basic introductory stuff all the way to what we would see as quite advanced education and oftentimes at a very young age as well. Um, there's tends to be an emphasis on a moral component. Uh, so a lot of the uh, works being used so that your first readers in medieval education uh, would be things like the Paternoster, the Ave Maria, the, the Credo, uh, things, so they're prayers, you know. And they weren't just there because because they they were they weren't just making a, a religious moral lesson out of it that's what was available that's those were widely available and they could be used and everyone knew them and so they could be used as a hook to educate people on how latin worked at the very basis uh, then they tended to move into like a uh, things like the distics catonus so they're quite moralizing you know you know uh and a lot of the stuff has a Christian bent to it, but a lot they did use a lot of uh, pagan literature uh, from ancient Rome. Uh, but it was seen that they had a, a moral as well. So there's an emphasis on that kind of information there. Uh, and then they have that later emphasis when, you know, the student or the pupil, I should say, because these are young pupils we're dealing with here. Uh, once they'd uh, mastered everyday actualities of grammar and speaking it. Uh, then there's a later emphasis on composition and on rhetoric. And of course, they use the reading in a very multi-textured way, sorry, multi-level way. Uh, for example, uh, they might read some Terence and they would use their Terence to augment their vocabulary but they would also use it to learn historical things, to learn uh, literary tropes, uh, all of that. So each piece of literature that they used in the classroom could be used in different ways and on many different levels. And another thing you get with elementary and grammar education is uh, 
it all also included, but it wasn't necessarily in the same stream. Sometimes you get a lot of the emphasis is on Latin education, okay? But sometimes you'd have different streams. So you had the arithmetic, basic accountancy and business skills that were often taught in an entirely different school and by entirely different masters. Uh, and that's called abaco in Italy. And you get that emerging, especially in the 14th and 15th century in places like uh, uh, France, uh, the, the Low Countries, Germany. Uh, and there's some exposure to vernacular readings. So uh, in uh, like readings literature in the local languages. Uh, but that wasn't actually very common. That seems to be more common in places like uh, England than on the continent. Who had access to this education? And, and I guess maybe sort of more broadly even, what was that education's purpose and, and what motivated people to, to take advantage of the access they did have to education? Well, the traditional story is is that only elite elites could access this education. Uh, but what we see today, in, especially the more we go through the archives, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, not only did people lower down the socioeconomic uh, totem pole uh, get education, but they also sought education. It was seen as something that a lot of people wanted. They may not have been able to have the to get it at that precise moment in time, but it was something that was desired. Uh, you see stuff not only in urban areas, but also in rural areas where you have uh, especially peasants, so people who work on the land, they actually give up the labor that their children could be contributing to uh, the farm, etc., etc., in order to have them educated. And the motivations behind that is actually some of, one of the reasons why I got into this topic. Um, because education had different purposes and motivations depending on if you look at those receiving education and those providing it, there's two different strands. So for children and their parents and guardians, it's actually mostly socioeconomic. They're looking at getting a better position in society. And that's a very complex thing. It's not just getting a better job. It's also taking a, a, a an increased role in your local community. So, uh, for example, we have evidence that... Uh, peasants in uh, the Champagne region of France uh, they actually uh, were educated basic education basic literacy but then they could act as uh, witnesses to wills and to various legal things so that raised their position within their communities um, and it was all about advancing the individual and the family in their society, in their community even if or especially if they were training their children to become uh, clerics, because that was a great career and was seen as a leg up for the whole family. You know, that was seen as a as a means to advance. Uh, and it's the same for girls. People don't really talk about uh, girls getting education, but even relatively uh, modest families want to educate their 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 daughters in some form, because of course. You could marry better if your daughters were they, your daughters could get better husbands uh, because then your daughter would be able to help their prospective husband in the business if they were a merchant or craftsman 
So that's one thing. And then they could also act as a teacher themselves to their own children, thus saving their husband money on having to send their children out to school for the basics. So it's actually really interesting. Yeah. Now, occasionally there's a religious motivation behind it. Um, because in, by becoming literate, uh, and I've made this argument in the book, uh, you are able to participate more fully in the Christian community. You would understand the liturgy. You could read uh, devotional texts. You could do all of that. You could become a better Christian. So you see that in some of the prescriptive literature. That's one of the aims. But I think on the ground, most people are like, yeah, we want you to get a job, a better job. We want to do better than we were able to do. And I think that's something that we definitely see as being a, a, a pretty human and long-lasting desire. Now, one of the really interesting things, though, is when you get into the providers of education, because you've got the church, they provide education, but you've also got uh, secular authorities, municipal governments, they all provide education too. So for the church, it, and for these things, it's also a socioeconomic reason. It's, it's practical reasons. The church needs priests. It needs clergy. It needs to uh, replace uh, priests. So they need to educate future clerics um, and secular towns and uh, like towns uh, rulers kings lords they did the same thing uh, to ensure uh, the supply of literate educated staff for uh, in order to run their their towns their entities their states and of course and this was the thing with both the church and with the uh, uh, cities and towns and rulers uh, there is an argument that by controlling education, you could maintain order through hegemony as well, that everyone had the same education. What are the sources that you use to access uh, education in uh, in late medieval Lyon, and, and, and where do you find these sources? Uh, yeah. uh, basically, th for this book, I was concentrated almost entirely on documentary sources. I was looking at basically minutes of meetings that were written down at that time. So I'm looking at proceedings of cathedral and church chapters and city council meetings. I got a lot of stuff out of those. Um, I looked at accounts and receipt books. I looked at tax rolls. Tax rolls were really fascinating. Uh, property records. Lyon has an amazing set of, they took basically surveys of uh, people's uh, uh property both movable and immovable so buildings as well as what they had in them as well and wills yeah so kind of a bit like it's not like like pressing the envelope in terms of uh, sources but it's I was looking at directly what came from the 14th and 15th century in Lyon the their records of what was going on I actually had a whole section on medieval literature about education uh, but that had to be cut for word <laughs> it was getting too big and that's actually now an upcoming book with kismet press 
So that's that's fantastic. That's coming out <laughs> uh, soon. I'm supposed to be working on it right now. So, <laughs> um, so where do you the, the for is for the documentary sources in this mm-hmm. book? Where did you find those? Did you have to go to Lyon I to get those? Literally, was in the archives in Lyon. I was in the municipal archives in Lyon and the archives of the Rhone department, which were also in Lyon. And so I literally was going through it turning the pages and these were the original documents uh, which was kind of exciting on its own get to be manhandling some of these uh, so I didn't really have to worry too much about transmission uh, because it's there those are the documents sitting there in front of me so uh, the you of course have to take some things you know uh, there's we all know that sometimes minutes of meetings can be massaged after the fact, you know. So you have to keep that in mind because uh, not all the minutes, uh, in fact, most of the minutes were copies of the notes because they were too clean, the copies. Uh, though I did have some that were clearly taken uh, at the meetings and they were terrible to read because they're all mistakes <laughs> and blotches and everything like that. So, Yeah. So aside from mistakes and blotches, mm-hmm. what are some of the other methodological difficulties or problems that you had with, with using these types of sources? Well, one of the serious, well, I, I didn't, one of the issues was they're very short. They're oftentimes one sentence, like Magister Pierre André Nichol Quia Magister Scolarum in a tax record, which basically means uh, Master Pierre André, he pays no taxes because he's a schoolmaster. So then it's like it, it you're kind of it's joining the dots often you're going through finding often tiny little nuggets all over the place and so they're very short to the point things they often look at one side as well so uh you can only see the for example the teachers in schools who came to the attention of or who were under the control of the authorities and sometimes teachers live out their whole careers and they never come to the notice of authorities. Uh, so, because you get a lot of independent masters and school mistresses at this time. They're they're doing their thing. They're taking in a few students for uh, a few uh, uh, coins and no one cares. They're supposed to care. They're supposed to be licensed. But, you know, people sometimes ignore that. Uh, so I've got a great example of a, of a, he was a he was a writing master and writing masters were considered way down the they were considered like no one liked them they were kind of considered like the dumbest teachers for some reason they're not like the the latin grammar teachers these were like oh because writing was seen as as a as a mechanical skill not as an intellectual skill so they were ranked way down though. And so I've got a Jean, a Jean de Apinil who was uh, uh, in the 15th century in Lyon who kind of came, he, I think he'd been sleeping rough or something and he came to the attention of the, uh, the town fathers and they were, they were, or he'd been evading like his taxes or something and then they realized, well, he can't pay anything because he's, he's just a miserable schoolmaster, you know. But that's all we've got from that, you know. So they're sometimes bloodless. The references are bloodless. They don't, they don't necessarily have a lot of information. It's, it's sheer like get, gathering as much data as you can 
and then laying it out and looking at the picture. So why is Lyon a, a good place to investigate education uh, as opposed to, you know, looking at, at, at Paris or Rome or, or some other city in Western Europe? Well, one of the things is in, in terms of uh, Italian late medieval, early Renaissance education is there's been a lot of great work done on that. But it's not the same situation. There's a different type of political system going on in Italy at that time that's not happening in France. So you have to look at what's happening in France. And it's not like England either, and it's not quite like the Netherlands. It's its, its own thing. One of the interesting things about medieval education that, that there is a, a pan-European aspect to it because everyone's doing Latin education. Everyone's learning Latin in Western Europe. So from Ireland to Bohemia, people are learning Latin. Uh, but when you look at Lyon, the reason, one of the reasons why I chose Lyon is because it's between France and Italy, because it's in southeastern France and it's culturally and politically kind of on a, on a frontier. Um, it's a very complex political situation on the ground in Lyon, and this is actually affecting schools right there on the ground, because Lyon, up till the beginning of the 14th century, was part of the Holy Roman Empire. It was not part of the Kingdom of France. And it was technically ruled by the Archbishop of Lyon under the aegis of the, the Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, so this changes in the 14th century and the the townspeople and the archbishops those had a slightly acrimonious relationship uh, and you see that play out in education uh, because they, they, they basically, they compete for who gets to uh, legally name the schoolmasters, who gets to legally uh, support the schools, which is... Uh, intriguing because it doesn't necessarily change what's been taught in the schools it just changes who gets to name the schoolmasters which is fascinating um and another thing is that there's no university in Lyon they didn't really get around to find founding a university so there's no university like pulling in a lot of students from across uh, the country or even across the continent uh, and that means you can actually see it kind of like, I hate to say it, put it like this, but in some ways a university can artificially promote education in an area, whereas we're seeing it, how it's coming up in this city uh, in, a, in a kind of like organic way. And, uh, and of course, they have great ar- archives. That's actually important. We have to go to where the information is. And the information and the excellent seafood dishes were in Lyon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, that's awesome. And those archives are so fun, too. Oh, Gosh, I know. they the nicest archives I've ever been to. <laughs> the Archive Departementale, when I was there, was actually in an old Carmelite monastery on the hill of the Fourvier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually counted the steps I had to climb each day to go up. And it was uh, 312 steps yeah. up. So what does your study contribute to our understanding of medieval education? Well, really, what my book tried to do was locate elementary and grammar education within its community. Uh, In this case, Lyon. Uh, 
it's often isolate. We often study education in isolation. It's either in a monastery or a university. And there are other people doing this uh, in different parts of Europe. But I really want to, to, to ground it in its community to show uh, that like the pupils aren't just emerging suddenly at the age of seven into these schools. These pupils came from the city and the surrounding areas. The teachers were members of the communities. Sometimes they're vilified as vagabonds. Sometimes they're important ecclesiastics. Uh, sometimes they're important municipal figures. Uh, they're, they, they promote cultural activities beyond the classroom. Uh, the schools were part of the material fabric of the city. Uh, and really, and I know this is very simplistic in many ways, it's to sum up and to, to, to remind us that schools and education were a part of everyday life in the later Middle Ages and that it was desired. People wanted to go to school. They couldn't, mightn't be able to afford it. They mightn't be able to have the time to do it. But it was something that people aspired to, that education was seen as something you wanted. You mightn't be able to have it, but you, you wanted it. And that you see this across, across uh, social divisions, uh, religious divisions, uh, gender divisions. It's what ultimately people want it in the end. Well, Dr. Lynch, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much for talking to me. That's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, and you can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. Until next time, awe at Wale.